Hi, I'm your host Pratik Panda and you're listening to Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast by Philo. Here we talk to the best and brightest in influencer marketing to help answer all your questions from finding the right influencers to making sure you have the best influencer marketing strategy. So let's get started. Welcome everybody to this latest episode of Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast. Joining us today is Jennifer Quigley-Jones, the CEO and founder of Digital Voices. Digital Voices is an agency that drives growth for brands through the power of influence. Prior to Digital Voices, Jennifer worked at YouTube as a strategic partner manager, helping creators to grow on the platform. Thanks a lot for joining us, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Great. So here's what I do with all of my guests, right? The first thing is I want to hear from you one hot controversial take on influencer marketing, something that you believe in, but maybe not everybody agrees to. So controversial, but I think that most influencer agencies who only focus on brand awareness campaigns are essentially not future-proofing themselves and only have currency as long as they are culturally aware and culturally fluent. Basically, the demand now, I think the influencer industry is in its adolescence. And brands are looking for influencer agencies that have technology, that have measurement capabilities, that can justify their existence through performance metrics. And I think influencer agencies that just focus on brand campaigns, the metrics are public. Views and impressions are publicly visible on most platforms. So they're not future-proofing themselves or building a moat. Got it. And that's an interesting take. And I want to dive a little bit deeper on the performance part. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit more about Digital Voices, right? Tell us more about the company. How did you go about starting it? Did your background in YouTube influence you to start something like this? Yes. So when I started working at YouTube, being a strategic partner manager was quite a different job. I don't think many people imagine that that's a career path that exists. My job was to like work with 500 creators, mainly in the UK, and help them grow their channels because when they make more money from ad revenue, so does YouTube. And that was kind of a new world for me. I'd come from like academia before then and like Syrian refugee work, which was very different. So I was learning about the creator economy, kind of thrown in the deep end. And then brands started coming to YouTube and coming to my team and asking us to recommend influencers for them to partner with. And I felt then, and honestly still feel now, that platforms should be impartial. They should be not financially prioritizing one influencer over another, one creator over another, because then you end up with all these potential claims of lack of diversity or favoritism. And like the most important thing for these platforms is trust from influencers. So when brands were coming to us asking who they should work with, I was like, guys, this is a slippery slope. We should avoid partnering brands and creators. And then there was a real gap. So I left YouTube and founded Digital Voices with like 500 pounds of savings. That was six years ago. So it feels a long time ago now. But as the years went on, we realized like our expertise in YouTube actually led to us driving more sales, more actions, more conversions, more click-throughs than a lot of other platforms. So our specialism in YouTube actually developed into a specialism for this performance-focused campaign. And since then, I think it's only scaled. Got it. Awesome. So let's get back to the conversation around performance and influencer marketing, right? I believe that influencer marketing in its current shape and form is still fairly new compared to other channels in marketing, right? And especially paid marketing channels. And considering that it is new, a lot of brands have actually relied on influencer marketing 
primarily for brand awareness and visibility, not so much about conversions. And I think it's only just starting out where marketers are starting to look at investing a part of their paid marketing or performance marketing budgets into influencer marketing, which means now ROI is important and you want to measure success. Do you see this trend as a new trend or do you think that you know this has been around for quite some time? It's interesting because it's a combination of being new and having been around for a long period of time. It's a really good question. Because if you think about like which brands have been doing influence marketing for performance on YouTube for seven years, Skillshare, HelloFresh, Nord, Surfshark, VPN, you know, like Raycon, Raid Shadow Legends, like all the OG brands that have been doing this for a long time, they've got like the heritage in it. When they started doing it six years ago, you could put content on YouTube, the rates were quite low and influencer fees were quite low and then you'd see sales and you could take like a huge range of bets because the fees were all quite low. Then brand awareness campaigns came in and started pumping a lot of money into influencer rates and the rates started increasing. So for the performance-focused brands that have been doing this for years, they had to change their strategy a lot because the influencers were raising their fees and their sales were staying the same. I guess HelloFresh is a really good example here because they've been so ahead of the curve. Their response was like, right, let's get influencer content and use it in paid ads so that that goes further. So I think a lot of these more traditional performance-focused brands either had to evolve and find new ways to drive more value from their influence marketing, or they weren't seeing the same results that their budgets were getting cut. So I think the difference now is approaching performance from like a full funnel perspective and approaching influencers as essentially a core part that you can build an entire media plan around. So you can use influencers for organic content. And that may drive sales that justify the cost. You'd get lucky, like, you know, it may justify it to organic content alone. But then if you start thinking, okay, could we use the influencers as part of an affiliate program? Could we use influencers as part of paid ad strategy? Could we use influencers even in our TV commercials or in out of home? And that way you drive far more value from these brand advocates. So I think that's changed a lot. The other thing I think is different is previously you could just as a brand, so say as a Skillshare, you could pay an influencer to produce a piece of content. And that's all you think about was like the content went out. Was it good? Did it follow the talking points? I think now when you're trying to run performance campaigns, it's much more sophisticated. So you need to think about like, is their call to action the most effective call to action? What is the customer journey? What's the conversion rate on the site? How do we optimize that site to convert stronger? Do we use the influencer's photo on the site or not? And I think you have to be much more strategic now if you're trying to run performance campaigns rather than I think there was a bit of a spray and pray approach before. Yeah, it was a pray and spray sort of approach. And do you think in today's date, as the focus becomes more towards performance out of these influencer marketing campaigns, does it sit under the performance marketing bucket or like a demand gen? So let's put it this way. If we were to ask who owns this, would it be a demand gen director or somebody who's owning influencer marketing? I've started to see more companies have an influencer marketing manager as well as a job title. What are you seeing in the market? So we did an analysis of our clients' job titles and our point of contact job title, and they vary massively from social to brand to marketing to growth. Too often it's like influencers and affiliates in that partnerships team. The interesting thing we see is that when the contact comes from that growth side, so when the contact comes from that affiliate growth background, that's when they're trying to test, learn, and scale. So that's when the budgets scale faster. 
often the brand marketing or social budgets, they stay the same or kind of might increase slightly, but stay pretty consistent from day one. But when you can prove sales, that's when your revenue scales. So that's when we find, yeah, those people are kind of really ambitious, growth-minded. They're pioneering like new approaches to marketing. And that's what I really love about them. Got it. And one thing that we hear a lot in this space is around authenticity, right? And you're trying to bring a good fit between the brand and the influencer. And now you're adding another piece here, which is around performance. And as a marketer, you want to drive conversions. And more often than not, as marketers ourselves, we know exactly what we want the influencer to talk about, but you also don't want to try and prescribe, right? And what do you suggest your customers How do they go about working with their influencers? Do they give them full creative freedom to go figure out whatever they want to talk about? Or is there some leeway into driving how the conversation should go? I think there's a kind of a plethora of options dependent on what your aim is. If your aim is to like position your brand in a certain way or get brand awareness for a certain product, then fine. Like I understand be very prescriptive. But one of my biggest gripes is when marketers decide to only engage influencers that look like their target customer, their dream target customer in their head. You know, when marketers have like these hilarious kind of awkward customer personas like Digital Dave, and they're like, okay, we only want to work with influencers and speak to Digital Dave. And I'm like, right, but that doesn't mean they have to be Digital Dave. Their audience might be Digital Dave, which again, it's always some stock image of a smiling man. The audience might be Digital Dave, but the influence themselves doesn't have to look like Digital Dave. So I would say like when marketers are too prescriptive in who their ideal influencer is, they miss out on huge opportunities, especially if it's conversion focused. So what we tend to say is if you're on the brand awareness side or you're trying to change your brand positioning, okay, we understand we'll source creators who match what you're looking for. We will insist on diversity in the campaign. So we hope you sign off a diverse shortlist. When you get to the brands that are trying to do that performance growth customer acquisition focus, this is where we really push them to test new verticals, new people and new approaches. So you may not have tried working with car channels. You may not have tried working with drag queen channels. That's where you unlock the gold because you unlock people that brands might not have considered working with before. They might not consider they have a natural affinity with, but they use that influencer to open an entire new customer base. I get really excited when we find an option there. So for example, we were working with a tech client and we were at VidCon having dinner and I think we'd had too much wine. And the client said, oh, women don't convert for this product. He was like, everyone's tried. If you can make women convert, you're unlocking like millions of dollars spent. Like it doesn't happen. You can try. So we went back to the drawing board. We changed the talking points. We had like our example video, we had a woman on our team do the voiceover so that when the influencers would look at an example video, female influencers would see a female example. And from the next like three months later, all their top converters were female run channels and with often female led audiences. So for a while, we like really transformed how this tech company thought about their customer base. And that's where like the power of trusting influencers and being strategic and testing and scaling is really exciting. Yeah, I think one thing that you said is amazing piece of advice and it is actually contrary to popular opinion or what people typically do, which is trying to identify 
areas that you think may not be the best fit, but the audience is there, right? You haven't explored that audience for your brand. And you're just trying to fit into those personas for your influencers who are your ideal buyers. And that's not actually what you're intending to do here. You want to find that their audience should have this target persona. And I see that a lot more with B2B marketers also, just because they tend to define their audiences even more tightly with, you know, specific job titles and what part of the world they are in and so on. They get very, very specific, right? And then it becomes hard to find these kind of influencers as well. Yeah, we did a B2B report about this, actually, because you're right. B2B marketers are often very prescriptive. They're like, oh, I want to influence IT decision makers. I'm like, okay, where are you going to find them? They're like, oh, I don't know, LinkedIn ads? You're like, oh, okay. I don't know if they'll be inspired by that. Whereas if you actually talk to developers and CTOs, ask them what they watch. Ask what they do. They normally don't have TikTok because they're worried. They understand the implications of data. So it's like often not TikTok. But ask what they watch and they will watch really weird, geeky stuff on YouTube. Exactly. It's, you know, <laughs> okay, let's, well, then why don't you sponsor? So we did a whole B2B campaign influencing IT decision makers that partnered with maths creators, science creators, like people who answered those like odd questions around the world. And it drove vast number of traffics and email subscriptions and competition entries because we wanted to give the potential customers something. It didn't come from targeting job titles on LinkedIn. It came from targeting them because they were people who had real interests. Like we were talking to another company that said, oh, our target audience is CEOs of scale-ups. And I was like, well, as a CEO of a scale-up, I can tell you that every hobby I have, I obsessively have to get really good at it. So let's sponsor hobbyist channels in your target market. Let's sponsor like golf channels. You want to not be embarrassing on a golf course. You want to improve your golf game. So of course you'll watch Rick Shields golf. That to me is a perfect B2B partnership because the customers are really high value. There may only be one in 50,000 of those viewers as your customer. But if in that integration, you can inspire them to learn more about the product, express their interest, go to the site and then become a customer, that's worth it. I find that example very interesting. Let's try to probe a little bit deeper into that, right? Let's say you are a brand who, where your ideal buyers actually go out and play golf a lot and therefore watch a lot of videos around golfing and how to get better at it. How do you try to insert, let's say, a B2B product into somebody who is actually doing content around golf? <laughs> so... There are a few different ways and this is where like it depends on the exact client. And this is where I think like you need an influencer agency that can help you be strategic in planning this. And this is where I think a lot of teams that try to do everything in-house end up with no creative space to do this work because they're spending so much time on influencer contracts. How do they have the headspace for a strategy? And then how do they get the buy-in from a wider team on the strategy? But I think it's really important to find like an agency partner that can help you be strategic with this planning. Say the product is Zoom, right? Zoom wants to sell more subscriptions. Okay, golf, really weird. You'd say to the creator, make a video about the top five drivers and insert 60 seconds about our brand. In that 60 seconds, you can tailor the messaging. So you get all the right traffic because the video looks just like their normal video. And then in that 60 seconds, you control the messaging. And that's where you need to be really strategic because as a brand, if you miss and waste that opportunity, you've wasted your money. So if I was Zoom, I'd be like, right, Rick Shields talks about how when he communicates with his team and when he travels for his golf tournaments and you know to cover golf stuff around the world, 
he will Zoom his editors back home. And that's how he makes remote working and his lifestyle work for him. So you've got like a personal use case where you're like, oh, I trust Rick Shields and he said that. Then you need to move on to the incentive, right? So what is the incentive to get someone to take an action and also take an action now so that you can attribute that interest? I would probably craft a Zoom-related Rick Shields competition. So you know the people watching him want advice on golf. So why don't you say, hey, I'm actually, I've partnered with Zoom. And if you click the link in the description or scan this QR code on screen now, you can enter the chance for me to do a personal coaching session with you over Zoom. I will give you a golf lesson. And then when they click through, you could have a qualification. So you could have that you have to be in a certain country to enter the competition. You could have that you need to provide your business details to enter a competition. But then by the time someone has seen that segment, watched the video, clicked through, signed up, they've learned about Zoom. They're going to have to experience Zoom if they win the competition. They trust Rick Shields. They're excited to tell people about this golf competition they've entered. And then you've got all their data as well. So you can add them to a marketing list. So that's where you need to, I think, be so much more strategic when you're planning like a B2B campaign with a high value customer. Because the only way that you won't waste budget is if you make sure you win their attention and win their data. I think that was a brilliant example. And all my B2B marketing friends would love this idea, you know, and you have to get more creative, right? Which means that, like you mentioned, a lot of times when you're trying to do everything in-house, you're moving so fast that there isn't enough time or headspace to you know take a step back and think creative strategy right and how to beautifully insert something like this right so i think that example was great let's talk a little bit about how do you find such influencers right and you're trying to find brand fit etc and we definitely just discussed a little while ago about how you need to start thinking outside of that box also but how do you go about finding influencers let's say for your customers what do you typically do when you have to go find the right influencers yeah, I think this is part of the landscape that's changing. And this is where Philo is definitely kind of very well positioned, because I think first party data is going to be something we only talk about more in the next 12, 18 months. The way we normally work is a brand would tell us who their target customer are in terms of demographics and interests. And then we would do an assessment to check that's accurate based on their web traffic, or based on their social following. And then we would match that target customer with 30 million influencers. So we have a data tool we use that pulls from the APIs of different platforms to make sure that we have access to who an influencer's audience is, and then we make sure that matches. And then we do a brand safety check. So often out of 30 million influencers, you'll end up with a list of like three to 5,000 people. And so our team then manually go through every single person to check that there's a some degree of brand fit there. Because say it's a slot machine channel or a dash cam channel or like bootleg TV shows, those wouldn't be appropriate. So we strip them back and then we're left with a shortlist and then we brand safety check every single person on that shortlist and think about how they could creatively integrate with the brand and with the proposal we put forward. And then we give that list, including a justification of why for every influencer to a brand and the brand gets to say yes or no. Getting from 30 million to like a list of 20 creators can often be a lot of hard work, but that's what we try to do. And I think the issues in the past have been that that data is sometimes not the most reliable. The data that's out there and the data tools that are out there have not been great. So this is where first party authenticated data, which is where TikTok creator marketplace and Instagram marketplace are all going, is kind of definitely the approach. 
Awesome. Yeah. And thanks for that nice little plug about filler also. It's a hard problem to solve, right? You want to provide a large enough data set for someone like you to be able to go through all these profiles and find the right ones, right? And to build this large enough database that is first party is extremely hard to do. And it takes time. It takes a lot of effort. Folks like you not only become customers for filler, but also largely partners because you help also make this data better and cleaner and it helps the overall ecosystem right and that's the objective and it's already at a time when a lot of these social platforms are also trying to impose more rules so that if at all you are accessing platform data it is authenticated and first party data and that's what we are trying to do at Philo also and emphasize primarily on that right and that makes life easier for influencers also brands also and partners like you also right who are trying to facilitate this relationship it's a really tough problem to solve and actually it's something that aspect i didn't mention is that every time we run a performance campaign with creators we have the results of that campaign so we know not just who matches your target audience which again, if you're on TikTok Creator Marketplace, you're a fellow customer, or, you know, you can access. But the part that we have at Digital Voices that no one else has is we have all that historic data. So we know, did an influencer inspire click-throughs? Did it drive sales? And what was the target customer that it drove sales from? So if another client comes to us with a similar target customer profile, we can literally be like, oh, here are 50 creators that have worked for another brand and that are likely to work for you. When I think about why would you go to one influence marketing agency over another? Efficiencies and processes, 100%, yes. Created that cool excitement factor. Yeah, I agree for brand awareness campaigns, but that changes every six months. But also like, does that agency have historic data that helps you drive your bottom line sales? They do, brilliant. If they don't think about where the impact of that historical data has gone and have they not been tracking it? If so, if they don't run performance campaigns, why would you trust them to run a performance campaign for you? I think that's a very, very important point because as influencer marketing is also trying to go towards more performance-based and we want to drive more ROI as marketers, I think that's the key thing, right? Like not only knowing which creator or influencer has your right audience, but who have the ability to convert amongst their audience, right? And that's an important piece. You can have creators or influencers who have a large audience, but hardly any conversions, right? And you could have an influencer with a small audience, but they drive conversions for you. And if you are focusing your campaign towards conversions, you know which one to pick in this case. There was a really famous influencer example of the Instagram creator who had like a million followers but couldn't sell 26 t-shirts. And like, hopefully we're good strategies and good historic data will avoid that problem. Do you also see influencers with fake followers and you're trying to deal with all of that? You know, the follower count seems pretty large, but engagement rates are low and you get a sense of that something's not right. We have a tool that we use for that. At that stage where we go through the 30 million creators, there's an audience authentication tool and engagement rates. And yeah, often depends on the platform, but there are certain creators engagement rates we wouldn't work with because of that. Yeah, buying followers seems to have fallen out of favor now, but we will see. I mean, you still need to be really careful about it. It's also why when we run campaigns for brands, we guarantee views or impressions. So from the outset, we say to them, hey, we guarantee a million views. And if you don't get a million views, we give you your money back or we spend it commissioning content until we do. So we make sure that influencers get paid because that protects the brand. But our job as an agency is to get to the goals we set together. So if we don't hit that goal, we'll give you back a 
portion of the agency fee or, or their whole thing. And that's really interesting because people don't tend to buy fake views as much. And you can see it on watch time graphs so you can authenticate the views. That's a lot of fun. Awesome. I've spent almost a decade on performance marketing side and, you know, spent money on different channels and trying to see what works, what doesn't work. One of the things on the paid marketing side online, at least, is that over time, you have to create multiple touch points before you actually see a conversion happen. On average, people would say like it requires anywhere between six to eight touch points before someone actually converts. And in today's date, it's getting even more difficult because pop-up blockers, ad blockers, difficulty targeting, it's a pain, right? As a marketer to also drive more value. Do you see something similar on the influencer marketing side? Do you need as many touch points? Does it convert better? It depends on the product. So I think influencer is one of those channels where you can convert from the first impression. We were once working with a company, it was a car reselling company, so you could list your car on the site. And they said to us, don't worry, this is just an awareness campaign. We don't expect you to have any conversion. It takes like three to six months for someone to convert. Don't worry. We had the first sale within three minutes of the content going live, the first listing. And so like you can do that. That's still few and far between. It's not how you should build your strategy. And I think brands that their whole strategies are built on seeding and gifting are really going to struggle because that's where they're like hoping for runaway success. And they're just hoping they can give away product. And I think that's a dead model. Like, I'm sure it happens. I don't mean dead. That's really harsh. I think it will happen and continue. It should not be the fundamental basis of your strategy. With influencer marketing, I think normally it is multiple touch points. So often it's multiple platforms as well. So we see slightly increased conversions if an influencer on multiple of their platforms mentions your product. The other thing that's really helpful is to do paid ads with that creator in it so that people are reminded because often people will think about a product and you'll get through ad blockers with influencers because ad blockers don't stop influence content, but they might not convert that first time. So it does help to either re-sponsor them and we've seen conversion rates increase on a second sponsor or to take their image and then retarget that audience with ads as much as possible. And that does drive conversions and also makes it much easier to convert On TikTok, for example, it's quite an ordeal to go from a piece of content to someone's link in their bio to the website to maybe purchase. And the whole aim of TikTok is to be as addictive as possible. So it's much easier to just keep scrolling because all the incentive is I will get another dopamine rush if I move my thumb. So Spark ads on TikTok help make conversion easier because from Spark ads, which are TikTok boosted content ads, you can click straight through to a site rather than having to do the step of profile, link in bio, and then go that way. So I would say there are certain things that the platforms are doing to make this easier, but you have to pay for those features. Awesome. I think that's a good tip and good advice as well. So talking about tips and advice, if a brand wants to just get started with influencer marketing today, what are some tips and advice you would give them? Ironically, I'd say don't start with an agency like us. So I'd say if you want to test it, make sure you've done a small trial in-house first. So test which calls to action are most effective in your paid ads, which drive most clicks, which drive more sales. So test that, optimize your landing pages, and then do some small influencer tests yourself with a few people who you think might, might access your target audience and get at least some glimmers to show this is right for you and then go to an agency to scale it. So I would say test those Three things, test working with influencers you think match your target customers, test your CTAs, test your landing pages. And then when you're ready to scale, go to an agency and be like, great, what can you do to help me? Awesome. 
Cool. That's helpful. And what do you see as trends in this market, right? Especially talking about influencer marketing. You did mention one thing that over the next 12 to 18 months, we will see brands, agencies, partners valuing first party data more. What are some other things that you see that's going to happen with influencer marketing over the next few years, let's say? In the short term, I'm really excited to see how like Adobe Firefly and generative AI imaging changes influencer marketing. I don't know if anyone else has fallen down that TikTok rabbit hole of like, what can Adobe do to this image? And I think that will be really phenomenal. I'm excited to see like campaigns that are all about testing reality and testing what we think is reality and what we don't. Even if you look at like DressX raised a lot of money and that's virtual clothing. I'm like, that could be really cool. Influencers advertising clothing that they're only wearing an image, they're not wearing in real life. I'm not a big metaverse fan. I don't think the metaverse is the future of the industry. But I think this idea of like testing what's reality and what isn't will be a theme over the next six months. Another thing that I'm excited to see, a lot of influencer teams or agencies are probably going to get in trouble in the next 12 to 18 months with music labels. I know Sony's already started quite publicly suing people for using copyrighted music and influencer campaigns. And that, you know, it's fair. Like people shouldn't have been doing it. We purposefully don't do it. And we know that costs our campaigns views because we will only use licensed tracks. But in response to this, we've actually become a partner with Universal Music, who have launched a platform called Globe Social Sync. And you can purchase catalog music for using an ad campaigns. If you think about like Kate Bush, Run Up That Hill, Fleetwood Mac, like a lot of these tracks are older tracks that have seen a resurgence because of TikTok. And I think we're going to see some really cool creative campaigns that use catalog music and actually create music trends again through being really creative, through legal licensing. So I'm really excited about that. I think we've just been named one of four partners. Awesome. I think that's pretty big. Congratulations. I know that it is a challenge. In my past role, I used to work for a company that built a technology called digital rights management, which was essentially a way to protect music, movies, anything that is being streamed online or on other devices, right? So I know that folks like Sony, rightly so, would want to make sure that this is becoming a big slice of pie. They would want a bite of it as well, right? Everybody wants a bite of it. Did you build content ID? Were you building YouTube's content ID system? Pretty much, right? So yeah, the company was called Intertrust and it's still around and they were the founders of this DRM technology and you would see this technology being used everywhere. Like folks like Netflix, Spotify, Apple Music, everybody uses some sort of DRM technology to protect their content, prevent it from piracy and things like that. And it's so interesting because I think the response thus far with music labels has been like, allow it on YouTube because you can monetize it. But on other platforms, let's try and cut the sound. But that's because there wasn't a monetization opportunity there. But I think if there is a monetization opportunity that like opens, that could triple the market size of them for sync licenses. So it could be quite an exciting one for the music industry as well. All right. Fun question. If you were to take an influencer out to lunch, who would it be? Keith Lee, 100%. I mean, Keith Lee would know the good lunch spots. So, you know. <laughs> Your food is sorted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, the issue is during lunch, I'd probably be leaning in to try and hear his eating because you can do that on TikTok. I don't know if you can do that in real life. It would be a bit weird. <laughs> also, just he seems such like a humble and genuine person. One of the things I love about him that I think is relatively similar to the feelings I have is like, I started Digital Voices partly because I love the idea that we can create an entire new economy of small entrepreneurs, empowering entrepreneurs 
through every dollar we get paid, 70 cents of it goes to like influencers and they are building their own businesses. And that's so cool. And I think he feels kind of like similarly about changing the food industry and about spotlighting entrepreneurs who haven't seen success that he thinks they deserve. And I, I just think he seems like a good guy. Awesome. I think and there are two keywords over there, which I would say is the takeaway for this episode is humble and genuine, right? And I think that's the key part of making influencer marketing work. And as long as that exists and continues to exist, I think it would continue to be a great valuable channel for brands, for influencers, for millions of these entrepreneurs to you know start up. And there is this whole creator middle class that we're talking about that is starting to see more potential. They're seeing more money come into their pockets and so much is happening in this space, right? And a lot of that is hooked on this whole thing around being genuine, right? And that's what attracts you to influencers. That's what attracts me. That's what attracts millions of other people to go listen to someone or follow someone and you know take their word for it right because we feel they are genuine and i think that's the key thing here anything else you would want to add to that as a takeaway for our audience i think what's interesting is that only four percent of global influencers make over a hundred thousand dollars a year and i think people see this industry as like washed with money and these creators are making crazy money but actually they put in so much effort to the content they make. They have to be their own salespeople, marketers, their own videographers, editors. I mean, they have a huge plethora of tasks to do. And most of them, especially if you look at TikTok now, they're doing it because they love it. I think you're right. That's kind of the myth you need to bust about creators. But they're not all rolling in money in their Lamborghini, taking your brand deal fee to the bank. Personally, I've been spending more time on my mental health over the last few months. And as I read more about mental health and I've been trying to read more about the influencer marketing space as well, it's a tough job, right? To be able to produce content every day and be creative every day. And so many of them struggle with mental health issues, right? Because it can get very challenging and it's a tough job. And we have this small community that we are slowly starting to grow now. It's called Thousand Faces Club. And it's essentially about celebrating creators, right? And we feel that it, it is a very lonely journey as a creator, uh, contrary to what you might feel as an audience, the moment you become a creator and start doing that more full time as well, you would realize that it is a fairly lonely journey and you try and do a lot of things yourself and it's difficult right it's hard and I think over the years it will get easier as more people come together help each other out and the community forms and that's the idea for us behind thousand faces as well that people from different backgrounds who are trying to play around being a creator full-time can come together and help each other out but yeah like you said they are not like washed in money it is a lot of hard work a lot of labor to produce that 30 second piece of content that we pretty much very easily flip through right yeah. it takes a lot of effort yeah yeah completely agree thank you this has been a great session really enjoyed it yeah same here jenny i love talking to you and we'll continue to stay in touch when i am in new york or london hopefully i'll drop you a note and we can try and catch up would be great meeting your team as well yeah i'll let you know if i'm in vancouver thank you so much Pratik. this has been great thanks a lot see you bye-bye Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast is brought to you by Philo. Philo is the easiest way to get access to authenticated creator data from hundreds of different platforms. To know more about Philo, visit getphilo.com. That's get, 
phyllo.com. Also, make sure to search for Influencer Marketing Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast listening platforms. And don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Philo, thank you so much for listening. 